Hello. The time is 3.36 p.m. And the next chapter I'll be reading is called Finding a New Path to God. I was tiptoeing back in the Kobe Buddhist Center because I was feeling frustrated with Christian churches and I missed chanting. In an effort to create some good karma, I volunteered my apartment to be uh, the meeting space for members to come and chant, in which Elton, the Bronx leader, obliged. After a couple of weeks of consistent visits, he stopped communicating with me about coming over, and no one returned my my return to my place, and I never knew why. I later found out that Elton had changed the days of our meet meetups without asking me how I felt about it. I got frustrated after he texted me, letting me know the meeting would be moved to Wednesdays instead of our usual Thursday meetup days, and that the meeting would be long, no longer be held at my place, but at the di- at a different house. And I was never a part of this discussion. This got under my skin because he was because we had a discussion a week prior about communicating better, and I found this sudden change to be a little strange. I found it also ironic considering Elton knew I had night classes on Wednesdays, which is why I was looking forward to meeting on Thursdays. I was not sure if he had planned to make this a permanent change, but he was not clear about his intentions, so I was again left in the dark. It was therapy for me to use my apartment as a refuge for other members to come and share their experiences, and I looked forward to it. To it. But the enemy wanted to co-opt my intentions by distracting Elton to where he became inconsistent and eventually the meeting stopped altogether. I was terribly sad about this lack of communication, so sad that I resulted to calling Wanda again. Wanda is the uh, Buddhist practitioner for over 30 years. She is a senior leader to complain and surprisingly she picked up. I had not heard from her in over two weeks, though I had been sending her text messages, but never received a response. She acted as if if she didn't know the texts were going through and even attempted to further show her ambivalence by pretending to scroll in her phone to look for my text. Then when she saw them, she she claimed it was the first time she had seen it. It became painfully clear she was suffering. I asked her if she was okay, and she said that she was feeling a little bit bad, but did not go into details. Her entire vibe was saying I was an inconvenience, and that I was that was confirmation for me, so I did not need to hear much else. I took that moment to be honest about my feelings, and I had hoped she would offer me some relief, but like most humans, she did not have a clue. She deflected from her own suffering and tried to directing the attention back to me and my life. I usually give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but why should I ignore obvious signs being created, causing my unhappiness? All I could do was to tell her how I felt and hope that it would bring about authentic change. The reason why I knew I wasn't simply caught up in my feelings was because this sort of thing happened several times before with members' lack of communication. And now it had been a year and I saw no improvement in how people treated me if there was ever a time when i came off rude or suspicious making off-handed or off-base assertions over the secret agenda of leaders that was the moment and i did not hold back i let it be known my suspicions were that the organization wanted to maintain a secret secret hierarchy system under the pretense of mentor and disciple roles kind of like alcoholic anonymous uses the sponsor sponsee relationship model I had my proof by the way Wanda treated me as I poured my heart out. 
Wanda and I used to keep in contact often, but I feel her vibration has been low and she did not like to hear what I had to say, so we had not talked in a while. She was completely brainwashed by all the Buddhist philosophy to where it irritated me to talk to her openly because she acts as if she does not know what hell feels like. I used to approach this Buddhist practice with the intent of making it law in my life. I had plans of practicing Buddhism for the rest of my life because I had no plans of ever truly calling myself a Christian. I was always open to studying many theologies and philosophies along with the Buddhist, um, along with Buddhism, even reading Kabbalah to expand my knowledge. I saw nothing wrong with going to a gay affirming church, knowing the leaders was an active lesbian. I only wanted the truth, no matter where I had to go to find it. I hate I was pinning all these complaints on the members, but like Wanda said, people are people. And we cannot expect perfection because everyone is going through their human revolution. This makes any collective effort difficult because no one wants to follow the many in body and one in mind model. Everyone seems to approach the practice in a way that suits them and can care less how the other person feels. I wanted to blame Elton and everyone else for my suffering. I wanted to say screw it and give, it, give up my new leadership position as the young men's leader. I wanted to do everything in my will that proved to the leaders of Kobe organization that I was not happy by the way that they chose not to value group meetings that would effectively strengthen our fellowship, brotherhood, and camaraderie. Why should I be the only one who understands how unit cohesion works? Meeting up once a week also outside of our busy schedules allowed me to hash out my differences and grudges and allowed members to voice their personal concerns while relieving doubt, suspicion, and unreasonable disagreements, forestalling the possibility of members becoming discouraged and avoiding participation in Kobe activities, at least for me. I had a serious problem with the Kobe leaders and how they asserted their powers of influence. It seemed to me that they were purposely keeping blacks from holding higher leadership roles, which were held predominantly by Asian and white members. It seemed the organization was being run by like a bureaucracy with, with power being shared only un, un, unilaterally, which only served to satisfy a selfish and dictatorial agenda of maintaining the powers to be mentality governed by unreasonable fear of punitive chastisement, unreasonable demands on membership quotas, which all were cultural distractions and strayed far from Buddhist teachings. What I had been uh, what had been allowed to transpire in the organization was a greed for profit and rank mentality. <laughs> there seemed to have been little concern for the genuine nature of destroying our demons, eradicating negative karma, and climbing out of the pits of hell of erroneous thinking, toxic, sabotaging behavior. All which undetermined good people on his intentions are undermined. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm trying to read standing up, and then it's about the rain, and I'm trying to get through this. They seem less focused on building strong, determined, and capable leaders. And I've seen proof that members of the Kobe were working covertly against other members whom they considered a threat because I saw the misguided dominance they imposed within the structures of the organization. This feeling never went away, only dissolving to a lesser degree to ensure that I remained peaceful and pleasant. 
but deep inside I knew that I could not give up till I was satisfied hashing all of my concerns out. The old expression, kill them with kindness. I strategized I needed to behave in a tactful manner that yields the truth over my suspiciousness. The thought was there and I know that it was there and I could not ignore it. While never exploring this aspect of my mind, did the feeling arise from the memory of slavery? Priscilla the Oracle told me that I was a kind of a, a kind man, but my soul was mad for having endured slavery. I know at one point my soul was living in the body of a person who was enslaved. This would explain why many black people are mad at the world. I am mad. I am angry. But I did not wish to remain in this state any longer. I wanted my soul to experience freedom. Therefore, I struggled with feeling safe in the organization. It made me mad to say that I was a Coldway member, yet I was conflicted in, in my feelings about the way leaders operated in the organization. Another thing that frustrated me was that none of the leaders admitted to their infractions, but they skirted around the issue and passed it off as negative karma, only to absolve them of ever having to take action to correct it. Seeing as an elusive or mystic, therefore it can't be correctly identified and corrected. <laughs> Dasaku Ikeda, the president of the Buddhist sect Soka Gaikai, says, The powers behind changing one's life should not negate the sacrifices one makes in the pursuit of happiness. End quote. Overcoming our internal darkness is one of those sacrifices and should not be overlooked for the sake of power and authority. I doubt I was wrong in my assumptions and witnessed the contradictions and I had no qualms about calling people out yet I still got pushed back and no one validated my concerns. I felt leadership saw me as a threat and this raised my anxiety even more because I was still finding myself and I discovered in order for me to master the self, I needed first to master people and I couldn't trust no one. So how could I trust myself? It felt like spiritual warfare, which was more ethereal than secular, but it played out through my relationships, and this irritated me, preferring otherwise to bypass people to get straight to the truth. But I was getting resistance, and this resistance was single-handedly keeping me from obtaining happiness. If I press forward, standing up for equality and calling out the injustice, I may be able to see the change I envision in, in for the planet. And this change will appear in the organization because somebody has to do it. So why not me? God did not place me in the military to learn discipline, correct ethical values, leadership, and courage to come out and not be in control of my own life. The next day, I apologized to Elton, but I also used this revelation of character to seek of all those individuals I was perceiving to be the reason for my meager confusion and perplexity. After I got in contact with them, I explained how I felt by giving examples of how their actions or lack thereof created that in the windows in my mind. I was able to voice my concerns, which alerted other leaders in the Bronx and to reach out to me and offer me some encouragement. It goes to show when you fight your devilish functions, the universe will yield its hand to bring you out of whatever trouble is in your mind. It was in my approach of the obstacle, not so much as what brought on the problem. By making the impossible possible and the unbearable bearable, I was under a divine hand stretched out by the universe. I began to see clearer, getting out of my victim head about some wrong being committed against me when it had nothing to do with me but the entire group. It is a constant rigorous effort to see through the shallow sense organs, taking control over my meager faculties, 
I asked God for clarity and focus so I could stop blaming others for my suffering. Elton and other leaders, Jerome, came by the house a few days later and spoke to me. I think they wanted to help me understand why I had changed I had a change of mind about being a leader for the young men's for the young men in our district. But I assured them that I did not want to give up my title and I would make things I wouldn't make things complicated by creating obstacles for myself. I took that time to tell Jerome that I felt that I had not been treated well by leadership in the Kobe and I did not feel valued while volunteering at the Buddhist Center. I told him I felt as though the staff take on role of the role of overseer, which has morphed into this hypervigilant schizoid behavior that looks like a military regime built around mass mind control rather than a homogenous organization. I perceived this dictatorship feeling when I walked inside the Buddhist center, feeling stifled and to grow the way that I needed to. I then went on to tell Jerome that I thought the Asians were racist. <laughs> this was later affirmed a week later when I went uh, to what they call Jodu spirit. And after chanting Saka, I decided to stick around and hear the speeches. Standing on the stage were only Asian leaders, all standing side by side as in a militarist formation. None of them looked pleasant, but all wore stone faces exuding more of a military look than Buddhist conviviality. The polarity looked more like a hierarchical structure which would have would expect to see in a political body in say North Korea not an inclusive Buddhist organization in America where ethnicity and differences were supposed to be celebrated the irony happened when the speaker stood to the podium to give her speech about people slandering the practice and other practitioners I could not help but think that they were talking about me. Was I being a troublemaker and trying to create factions among the members? Was I rebelling against the order of the way things operated in the organization by speaking out against discrimination and bias from within? Despite my honest efforts to understand people, I was still being treated as if I was committed treason or espionage. I made some very bodacious accusations about several members based on how they have treated me. Though my accusations were accurate, I realized people did not take too well to being called racist. It did not make me happy that I did not trust, nor did it give me satisfaction to play detective. I did not know where I saw myself going as a young men's leader and as a member of the organization. While frustrated with Elton, I realized I was able to identify unmet needs that was hidden deeper beneath the surface of the problem. All my complaints about not feeling valued or appreciated stemmed from a need for friendship so I wouldn't feel alone. Instead, I blamed the difficulty of disunity with Elton and his lack of communication. While speaking, I was transparent and open about how I truly felt and eventually broke down and said, I'm lonely and I need love. I need friends. Help. It came out doing my frustrations and anger subliminally. However, neither of them knew how to deal with my anguish. I do not think this is due to a lack of concern or care. They just didn't know what to say. Buddhism helps the individual recognize their darkness by helping to alleviate human suffering. However, Buddhist psychology is about self-knowledge, finding who we truly are and understanding how our actions, thoughts, feelings, and ultimately take us along this transformative spiritual path. I am not a psychotherapist, but I understand that awareness starts with putting my oxygen mask on before I help my neighbor. Many leaders never learn to don their own mask, so they never know how to don mine when I'm gasping for air. 
Maybe the members did not want to haphazardly inflict harm considering I was very distressed by members not knowing, showing up at my place weekly. I was left to observe my own mind and hashing the issues for myself. After my self-assessment, I realized that I made bad judgments, was impulsive, and my response to external events were disoriented, bizarre, inappropriate, and perceptual. This imagined persecutory syndrome made me think Elton stopped organizing the meetings because he didn't want to be around me out of fear of my strange behavior, but it was only a cry for help and not that I really wanted to be in control or dominate people under me. I had been chanting to understand how the COVID organization is run, but I did not trust those Asian and white people. This is why I stopped going to the Buddhist center to volunteer. But after a couple of months, I never volunteered of volunteering. I was asked to come in and pull a ship. So I agreed to volunteer to make a good cause for the well-being of the organization. Meanwhile, I took it up upon myself to reach out to a few members to ask if they would donate to help my family raise $1,500 to purchase a headstone for my grandmother. My grandmother has been dead for eight years, and the family never was able to put a mo- put the money together to bring a dignity to my grandmother's life. I sent the link to our family GoFundMe page so they could donate. But within an hour, a white member sent me a link to an organization uh, detailing the rules on code of conduct. I cannot believe what I was seeing. This was proof they did not care about their members. There was no empathy, no encouragement, no regard. I guess this was a way to correct me or prevent me from soliciting money from members. Though I understand the rules, it seemed convenient to deny me true empathy and sincere dialogue when I was struggling. I began to feel decisive, divisive, and contradictory attitudes coming from the members, and I felt that it would be better if I didn't have this negative thought. But people's actions kept reaffirming why I doubted the dislike. Uh, and I dislike participating in COVID activities. Why should I have to deal with being brushed aside? But when it came to me volunteering my time or contributing money, they expected full participation. But I got nothing in return. I struggled with deciding to walk away from the Kobe. But then another part of me wondered, what would I be missing if I moved fully to another place? I had been going occasionally to Rivers of Living Water Baptist Church. I went there worshiping and I left feeling that I could go back into the world with some protection. I did not feel the same protection at that Kobe organization, but I was struggling with deciding not to go back because they say these obstacles is what gives us the courage to fight against any obstacle. But what if the fight is bigger than the desire? What if I did not have it in me to fight against members who were consciously doing things to keep me feeling insecure, vulnerable, unsure, and frustrated and upset all the time? I bet Rivers do not have a code of conduct and I'll always knew community churches to collect money for members who were in need. I know I was not alone in my feelings because a friend of mine who was also a member went through the same experience and we spoke often about how, how shady the members of the Kobe were being. The time was for excuses was over and I needed to follow my heart. I reasoned I'd rather be a part of the AA and get support from a group of alcoholics and subject myself further to the abuses of the Kobe members. It was sad that they had invested so much of my time in their call to their cause, and I still was not happy. The way they treated me only affirmed my unhappiness. I was constantly ignored, looked over, and made to feel delusional and going out of my mind, and the members often ignored my text messages. They never explained to me anything that would help me understand why I was perceiving what I was perceiving, and it drove me crazy. 
When I asked to be removed as a leader from the young men's group, I was then met with concern and Elton tried explaining things, but it seemed after a couple of weeks after everything went back to the usual dysfunction, full of miscommunication and misjudgment, miscalculation and misrepresentation of my character and intentions. God knows my heart and he was not clicking with the hearts of the members because they seemed to be two different objectives disallowing unity. I needed time to myself to figure this all out, so I simply stopped going to all the Buddhist centers. After a few months, Wanda stopped by my apartment unannounced to talk to me about my recent disappearance. I told her that I blocked her number and the numbers of all the other members because I did not want to be called in to volunteer or to participate with what I called click mentality. I had zero interest in alliances and pretending I like people whom I did not. I could love to respect all human beings, society, but I did not have to like anyone. The reality is people must prove themselves to me. And if they thought that I was going to make the effort to extend myself for approval, <laughs> and they were seriously mistaken, I was saying all this to say that I decided to back away from the Kobe Buddhist organization. I no longer wanted to be a part of the young men's division either. I no longer wanted to continue volunteering. I no longer believed that I was creating value by participating in a militarist organization. I was tired of wrestling with the feelings that I had of being hoodwicked and lied to as an attempt to take my valuable time away and use me for free labor. The peculiar thing was that I feel good before entering the Buddhist center, but when I leave, I feel objectified and belittled and scrutinized by the members. I feel paranoid to be gawked at when I am there, which sets in this feeling that I do not belong. Eventually, one must step back and evaluate the situation and try to figure out the cause behind it instead of simply dismissing it as karma. If I ignore it, I am being dishonest with myself. If I confront it, I am a troublemaker or I am inviting negative karma in my life, as the philosophy goes. I'd rather be a part of an organization that values me for all of me, not only for what I can do for them. This is how the military made me feel, which is why I got out and the Kobe was behaving no different. I was finally fed up with feeling trapped, shut out, unappreciated, and outcast by the members of the organization. There was nothing worse than feeling betrayed and devalued by the same people that I have been grown to appreciate and started to accept for those connections to be tossed aside by petty gossip, deception, and confusion, which only reinforces heteronormative tactics used to ossify contentious feelings between the members. <laughs> I felt a lot lighter and a lot happier now that I severed ties with my role as the young men's leader because the leaders were coming off racist and homophobic, and the organization turned out to be a run, run like a hierarchical um, aristocracy than a humanistic organization. Human evolution sees no color, so my color shouldn't have to be a factor. There should be no reason why I was perceiving racism in one of the most culturally inclusive organizations in New York. When I feel I am being pushed aside, a wall against a wall, I will fight against the resistance and reclaim my... This is a long-ass chapter. Oh, guys, bear with me. Resistance and reclaim my right to live as a free human being. What society wishes to do is keep control over certain individuals by enslaving them to various social causes that ultimately serve no purpose. I found the members weird, passive-aggressive, and deceptive people. 
I know I was valuing my dignity the day that I stopped allowing members to disappoint me when I have invested all my time to their cause. It took a matter of minutes after sitting in front of my Gohanzen and reflecting over the last year and change how emotionally drained I have been since joining them as a member that I finally said enough was enough and I decided to turn my Gohanzen back to the organization. This would be the last time I chanted in front of my Gohanzen, but I was okay with parting with it because it... It is indeed a mirror to my life, and I saw it going nowhere beyond being a slave in another organization. My decision was confirmed after three, three members paid me on a visit to discuss my current dis, uh, disposition about how I perceived to be treated in the organization. It did not make it any better that I was virtually ignored by three pri- three months for three months prior to them coming. Not even a single call was made to me the entire time. To think all that I have contributed to the organization, going out of my way to buy food for the members, opening my door to perfect strangers, letting all kinds of spirits into my home, all the while they were concealing their hate for me. I took my role as serious as I took my leadership as a soldier, performing my duties with integrity, making routine calls to group members, encouraging him being a good Buddhist by inviting people into the practice because I felt in my heart that Buddhism was meant for the world. All of this did not matter because they all already made up in their minds that they did not want me uh, for being me. And sadly, that was enough to justify why I was now being spiritually attacked. I allowed the three men to come, into, in, to come inside and they sat down in a circle around me. It felt more like a tribunal than them being honestly concerned about my feelings. I could read straight through their deceptive intentions and it was obvious there was no way that I could trust these people. So I made a decision. After calmly renouncing their backhanded attempt to conceal their odious vices, I promptly escorted them in a single file out of my house. Astounded by their hypocrisy, pretending to come and reconcile matters, I went to Michael Hansen to figure out what I should do next. I surely cannot trust them after this, and I could, could never pretend around people whom I've had the displeasure of a bad reception. Yet I wanted to trust the law when the people proved they couldn't be trusted in my eyes. Sitting in front of the Mandela, looking intensely at it, I asked myself, could I honestly be content with practicing, knowing that I may never get the approval or the respect that I deserved by the members. Suddenly, I had received clarity. Choose you, the words appeared right before my eyes, and I instantly took it as a sign from God that he wanted me to decide without delay. The decision had to be made for me by the way that I had been treated. I would leave the organization and follow my own spiritual path. If I wanted to be controlled, I would have stayed in the military, and the Kobe was all about control in the name of happiness. I had reached the apex of my Buddhist journey and decided to keep up, uh, give up chanting for the old-fashioned prayer. Of course, I had apprehensions over whether I was going, doing the right thing. Was I running away from the only thing that could sustain me? And was I rejecting God for desiring to change? All these thoughts entered and consumed my thought, doubts. Buddhist principles stresses the need to follow the law and not the people. But how do you... How do you do that when the entire organizations are operating under a condescension and mind control? How could I trust a foreign people America once attempted to exterminate? 
I found the Japanese all out of touch, suspiciously quiet and concerned of black people when so much of our social issues were centered around police brutality that was never addressed by the leaders during the Buddhist engagements at the center. Their form of Buddhism started to look more like a denial of reality than any transformative agent to view reality differently. How can you transform if you never acknowledge what is being transformed? It became clear that my objectives did not align with the organization's goal. And if I was going to be an agent of change in this realm of reality, I needed to be a part of a community that aligned their values with black concerns as well. Not only giving us an African cultural celebration to pacify inclusion, it seemed like the men who came to my place were more concerned with quantity and not quality. Those three men stressed daily practice and to follow the teachings when a big part of Dashonin's teachings discusses communication, compassion, and being consistent, which they were not. It was hypocritical to claim to care about taking care of the members but ignore a member who was hurting. I was not angry with any of the members. Oh my God. Guys, I'm almost done. I was not angry with any of the members. I feel freer when I do not allow others to dictate, control, suppress, or coerce my decision. I realized by the end of the, this bizarre in, uh, inter, interrogation that the devil had come to make his final proposition to me, and I politely but assertively dismissed them out of my home, holding no contempt but light resolve that God was still okay with me, though it seemed that I was giving up on him. I realized my choice to turn away from the Kobe did not define me, nor did it dictate if I am favored by God. There is no question I was favored by God because he made me. I did not create myself. He molded me from black clay and ordered me into the realm of human beings to grow, discover, and know for myself that life is not limited to only one way of doing things. If that was the case, I would still be in Arkansas, kicking rocks, twiddling my thumbs, hoping some slave master would offer me a job. I wanted to live life with more than money as the primary objective, though I cannot avoid it. I must discover myself, a sense of me that will always be consistent and trustworthy, and this is my newfound impressions of who God is. With God, all things are possible, even my happiness. This helps me sleep at night. It keeps the haters away and weather the storm that seems to come in at every whelm. I was ready to surrender it all. I was ready to follow my heart, and my heart was telling me to embark on something else in my life. This embarkment will ultimately lead me closer to the God energy that I was created to connect to. Should I only eat, work, and sleep all the while, allowing my prayers to become pipe dreams? Was it a struggle to manifest hope for a good future? I wanted to be kind, patient, honest, trustworthy to myself and others while enjoying life with all of these enjoyments. I wanted to seek, learn, grow, and transform, create, and laugh, and above all, know God, because when you know God, everything makes sense. I sensed God was pushing me to connect to my African roots, to know the rituals, my African heritage, those habits that was not taught to me by my parents. I called the Buddhist center and informed them of my decision and that I would be coming to return my Gohanzen. I spoke to the Kobe leader, Kaiochi, and he requested that I see him before leaving the center. <laughs> I thought this was a bit strange considering the first um, and last time he spoke to me was, a, was to scold me for mispronouncing the leader of the Kobe's name. I did not trust him after that disappointing encounter, so I figured this impromptu invitation to see him was a setup, and I feared my body would be found in the Hudson River if I accepted his request. 
I had no idea what he could possibly say to me, but I was not in the mood for his bull crap. I was not changing my mind about leaving, and there was nothing that he could say to convince me that he was an honest person running an honest organization. I had known, I had not known much about Japanese people prior to joining, and what I've experienced was no different than the tactics white people use to subjugate me and suppress my voice, relegating my talents to what is convenient for them. When I finally arrived, I was greeted coldly by the desk clerk, but I did not pay them no mind, and I took the elevator to Mr. Kaiochi's office. Nerves put terror in my head, but I was coming with a purpose, so I could not back down at this point. He led me into his office to discuss with me why I wanted to leave the organization, and I told him why. And it was not good enough for him. <laughs> I had suspected I would be have to put up under this kind of intense fire. Why could he not understand that I resented this mantra about fundamental darkness and simply, and them simply uh, simplifying the human condition to, we all have problems? This generalization never seemed to rectify the deep concerns I had about feeling, uh, feelings that there being a lack of empowerment and cultural appropriation. The organization did not hold my personality within the confines of their 10 world program to Buddhahood. They all spoke about the lower worlds, but did not acknowledge them in themselves. Therefore, I had to make the God honest decision to turn away and find another path. As I was explaining this, I could see that he was growing perturbed and his face became tight. It started to feel that he was stalling me and I thought that perhaps he was waiting on other men to come and throw a black pillowcase over my head and tie me up and get rid of me. So I dismissed myself. When I stood up, he asked me sternly to sit back down. But I walked nervously toward the door and said, not at all, as I swung the door open and jetted out, avoiding the elevator and hitting the staircase, making a dash for it before he planned for his planned work. I avoided going out of the front entrance, thinking it could be another setup. So I let, left out the staircase as an exit and never looked back. I swore to never allow anyone to persuade me into joining an, uh, another religious cult and I would be good not to go back to Rivers either as the members were all kind of weird there too. I had pretty much had it with organizations. Educational institutions were rigid enough. My soul did not need to sign another contract to be some institutional slave. I think my soul would agree that it was tired of being a slave and I think my ancestors would vouch for that as well. German theologian Johann Andreas writes in Christianopolis, for Satan never operates against us with his secret devices more easily than when he promises pure joy, where in reality there is least of pleasure, very much pain and disgust. End quote. A heavy burden had been lifted off my heart, and I did not have to argue at no one or explain myself to no one anymore. I no longer felt rejected or ignored. I would no longer feel my voice as being suppressed or my personality controlled. Authority figures try to smother every bit of personality that I have, and they try to make me believe that the way they want. This back and forth with Kaiochi proved why it was important to remove myself from the toxic people in order to have peace. It was becoming too volatile to tolerate all of those different personalities that wanted to tell me how I should feel about myself and the Buddhist practice. <clears throat> they might not have stated it explicitly, but it was implicitly conveyed by how they ran the organization, a method that borderlined on control to facilitate cohesion. When I was able to muster the courage to deny my own belief regarding loyalty, I was able to remove myself from the grips of being controlled. 
allowing myself to maneuver in a way that suits my fancy. I did, however, continue to share the practice with people and I would come across, but I never persuaded anyone to join the Kobe or commit to going to, an or, to a meeting because I realized there was no sure way of being happy only by joining an organization. If the mode is to achieve happiness is if the mode to achieving happiness is unhappiness by accruing problems with people, then I'd rather live the easy life devoid of all these worries. If bad things were to come inevitably to my life, then let them come, despite of me thinking that I need a church, synagogue, a temple, a mosque, or a cultural center to prevent the inevitable. I did not want to be responsible for creating a malignancy in my body because I chose to chase happiness. I realized this pursuit was futile and only brings more problems in my life. When I look back on the last year, everything that happened or did not happen seemed to be due to this rigid compartmentalization of God's ability. Even the word ability seems like now limited in the sense that God is omnipotent and boundless. Ability suggests something which means traits or fortified by practice, but God does not need practice. He does not need abilities. He is just is. He is the why that makes us question. If I did not have an answer, it is that connection to the is that puts back the joy in my heart. The stress did not have to haunt me anymore. Now I needed to harness this new energy of self and create my story to write it the way that I feel will allow the facets of my personality to be expressed the best that it can. I had come, I, I had God and that was all I needed. I did not need religion. Religion needed servants and I refused to be a servant. Religion invokes the damage of slowly removing my authenticity of myself to where I unlearn to trust myself and change the course of my heart. It requires me to live under some pretense of someone's prescription, philosophy, or world concept. I will be the change I want to see in this God-given world and no longer will I do things to please other people. No longer will I put my desires second and some, someone else's first. God guides me, but sometimes he guides me in places that are not necessarily the right destination. But he has a bigger plan for putting me in the Kobe. God per God's purpose is for me to accept everything as temperamental and to know nothing is forever. Nothing is set in stone, so I must not worry about that, uh, that I no longer have a Gohanzen or I am not a part of a faith-based organization. I should not be concerned how I will not practice my faith because I have the tools within me and it starts with self-love and self-care and not being lost behind the motives of some big machine that is out of control. There might come a day that I may regret leaving the Kobe and giving up practicing Buddhism, but it is what God has in store for me that lessens the guilt. It is the intent of God that pushes me to, to be a member of the Kobe. Now he was pulling me out of this fire, this storm, this confusion. I knew my decision was the right one when I did not leave with malice in my heart, but a resolve never to allow anyone to control me. The quarrelsome natures I had did not, the quarrelsome nature I had did not have to be reserved anymore. I did not have to fight for the happiness of myself because God was fighting for me. My life is the right with God because I am of God. Therefore, how can the choices that I make not lead to some good? And that is finally the end of this chapter. Thank you for listening. Good day. Hello, the time is 8.45 a.m. And this next chapter I'll be reading is called Regression Before Self-Evolution.
While doing some research for a class at Ferguson Campus Library, I struck a conversation with one of the library staff members, and we got on the topic of the unfairness of education system and how the prison pipeline affects black boys. She mentioned I should follow a man named Dr. Umar Johnson on YouTube, who is a psychologist and public speaker who speaks on social ills of the system and promotes black unity. I was intrigued, so I went to the circulation desk and checked out a pair of headphones to listen to his commentary. I was not feeling the young white girl standing behind the desk, so I went to the Latin guy sitting next to her, but he explained that he was only in charge of retrieving the equipment and not checking them out, so I was forced to deal with her. When the Latin guy came back with the headphones, he handed me uh, them to her, and she handed them to me. And for an unknown reason, I snatched them out of her hand in the most passive-aggressive way. I went back to my computer and started listening to Dr. Umar Johnson's commentary. Within minutes, I saw him as more of a Garvinite, freedom fighter, revolutionist. Garvey's spirit did live through him, and it had me fired up. For no apparent reason, the headphones broke apart, so I returned them back to the circulation desk in exchange for another pair. The white lady was still sitting at the circulation desk, now accompanied by a black guy. I handed him, handed her the headphones, explaining what happened, and she went back to get another pair. When she came back, she struck me this peculiar half-smile, but I knew it was fake. She asked me for my ID, so I handed her my driver's license instead of my student ID. She asked if I had my student ID, and I responded, why didn't you just say student ID? Then she began going into white girl entitled mode and attempted to get me aroused. I cannot explain the motivation behind this manipulative tactic, but it almost always provokes an emotional response. This obvious tension between us had some, nothing to do with the retrieving a new set of headphones, so I didn't feed into it. Yet my voice was stern and sarcastic, looking at her directly in the eye to let her know that I was not intimidated by her. Then she went into helpless victim mode and forced herself to become emotionally distressed while she called the security to the front desk while forcing tears in her eyes. The security guard walked over to the desk, acting blackish, trying to inquire into what the problem was. I attempted to explain, but the white girl interrupted me, which turned into a back and forth. Then the security guard told me to remain quiet. I remained focused, only inquiring what I was about to check, uh, check another pair of headphones out so I could go back to the computer. The library supervisor, who was a Latina woman, approached the desk. He struck me this dumbfounded look and seemed appalled that I had returned the headphones broken. She told me to make sure that I checked the equipment before checking them out. I complied, but the white girl stated that she wanted to make a report. So this alerted three campus officers to come to the library, which caused a big scene. It was so dramatic and all because this white girl did not like my tone when all she had to do was check out the headphones to me and I would have gone back to my on about my business. The funny thing was the first security officer who was a black cop asked the staff were there any witnesses but the black guy's staff member stood there and did not say nothing. <laughs> that is when I knew that every man was for himself when he did not come to my defense. In times of trouble you cannot rely on black people. I had to I had to write a statement all the while this black rent-a-cop was antagonizing me asking me questions to provoke me to talk then he said he didn't like my tone and that he was just trying to do his job which is what most people say when they're up to no good and asked and, and, and against their own kind I realized I was not dealing with a rational man and that the other two Latino female cops were also antagonistic with their approach 
It was an unreasonable situation and I felt I was being ambushed. I found myself playing the sideshow to their cop against black gay guy off-Broadway performance. All because white Becky called Wolf. Now everybody's running around in a frenzy to rescue this helpless damsel in distress. I knew she was getting kicks out of pulling her mental strings the entire time and doing it with a stone face. I understood tensions were high since a cop had been shot a few weeks prior by a black mentally ill man in the Bronx. But there was no reason to treat me like I was a thug on the streets and not some student at the school. I mentioned I, mentioned I took antidepressants and needed to get home to take them. I had tricks on my sleeve as well. The Latina supervisor chose not to give me another pair of headphones, so I stormed out of the building, blurting out to the cops indirectly. A nigger can't get even get an education. My anger was coming from a deep wounded place where so many of our black men are afforded, not afforded a chance to go to school. I left the campus feeling irritated and obviously needed something to take the edge off. As I was walking home from campus, out of nowhere, I spotted a weed dealer, my weed dealer from my neighborhood, whom I had been trying to avoid. I saw him going the opposite direction, so I pretended not to say, see him. But as I was crossing past the buildings on the block that he was on, he turned around and spotted me. Hey, Black! He yelled, an annoying nickname he gave me as a sign of his endearment, <laughs> I guess. He ran up to me and asked me if I needed any weed. This offer couldn't have come at a better time, but I was trying to stay sober and knew it was wrong, but I said yes anyways. I was trying to avoid smoking weed altogether, feeling it was making me lethargic and I could not get any writing done while high. I needed a break from it, and here this guy was coming out of nowhere, tempting me. But he caught me weak, frustrated, and feeling apprehensive about my future at Ferguson. I felt, I felt the campus security would now try to set up a plot to get me to fall in the hole they dug for me by reporting me as a threat to the school administrators. I was worried that the school would now make a cause case to have me kicked out. I hesitantly handed him $20 and followed him a couple of blocks to a nearby apartment building. He told me to wait on the ground floor hallway and he would go up and get the weed and bring it down. After 10 minutes, I phoned him, but he told me that the uh, dealer was serving another customer and he was almost done and asked me to wait outside the building. I started feeling paranoid that he was setting me up to be robbed, so I did not want to be in the building to be an easy target, so I followed his instructions. The door locked behind me, which left me outside still waiting. After about 20 minutes, I texted him, but there was no reply. Then a couple of Latino guys walked out of the building and stood in front of the building looking suspiciously in my direction. I decided to walk down a bit so I wouldn't be close to the entrance of the building, but not too far as not to lose him. He never responded to my text, so I walked away without the weed and my $20 was gone. That negative consequence revealed to me how I needed to have all, uh, leave all people that do drugs alone. I did not need a weed contact because it was always leads to disaster. I wasn't upset, but swore if I ever saw him around the hood, he better walk the other way because he lied to me, a cop, the cop to cop drugs for himself, being that he was a known cokehead. He saw me as an easy target to score because we both were gay and he knew that I had no street cred to retaliate. Here I was trying to support gay owned business and he, here he goes, doing me wrong, further breaking my trust in all gay men. I already did not trust gay men sexually. Now I saw that I could not trust them in business endeavors as well without them trying to get over or stealing from me because and paying me back with STDs. 
After that library altercation and now losing $20, I needed to relax, so I went to the gym to relieve stress building all day. I went to Platinum Fitness, and while on the machine, I was approached aggressively by some meathead Latino dude because he wanted to utilize the machine I was on. He walked it to me brazenly, to my face. Get the hell out of here. To my face, he said. I knew it was nothing but the devil working in him to cause him to speak to me that way. I did not want to let him drive me crazy, so I stepped up to him to let him know that he did not intimidate me, and I kept on with my workout. I was surprised that I did not feel tense or anxious in that moment, but I also did not want him to talk and blatantly disrespect me, especially over gym equipment that neither belonged to him nor me. It came out of nowhere, and I desperately needed to escape this situation before it escalated further. I went downstairs to inform the employees at the desk what happened, but I was met with condescending sarcasm. Another Latino guy who was standing behind the desk asked, started asking me rhetorical questions that did not have nothing to do with me nearly getting my head knocked off, and now I was engaged in a back and forth with the Platinum Fitness employee. He was clearly not paying attention to my concern, and I felt my blood boiling with anger. I could not take the abuse anymore, so I lashed out to him. This made me feel a little bit better, but I knew that it would, not, it would be awkward if I went back to that gym. While I explained the harassment to the black employee who stepped between me and the Latino guy, another Latino employee decided to get in on the fun and was t talking crap behind me, going around me with a mop, trying to distract me from making my complaint. Whenever I find something that brings me pleasure, it's always interrupted by some hater. I knew the meathead upstairs was only letting his emotions get the best of him because I was prepared to do what I had to do, but I was not in the mood to argue like some woman. I would have rather stabbed him in the neck with a Swiss army knife seven times while twisting it deep in it to make sure that I was the last person he bullied off gym equipment. I was frustrated by the entire experience and I was swore revenge, so I went back upstairs and grabbed a 10 pound weight and walked over into the area where he was standing, hoping he said something to me, then I would bash his head open with it. After that experience, I refused to speak to the staff and swiped my card and walked away without giving an usual greeting. I minded my business, keeping my workouts quick and to the point, avoiding eye contact with anyone who looked at me disgustingly. I knew it was jealousy masked as hate because Latin people carry a grudge on their hearts for black people while venerating the oppressor. It is pathetic and annoying to deal with people who pander to whites that turn around and look down on blacks simply to appease their masters. <laughs> Coming to the gym was supposed to be a stress reliever, not some hostile ring match where I'm walking out and feeling more stressed than I came in with. All of this stress has made me put me on edge and I swore I would be prepared the next time it happened again. But I didn't need to wait very long because a few days later I lashed out sarcastically to a white family while we both was walking on the train. They stopped in front of me, attempted to go through the doors before me, ignoring the fact that I was closest to the door, and I thought they wanted to prevent me from getting the seat before them. It seemed as if they were playing the white privilege card rather than your typical New York rudeness. When the doors opened, we both squeezed through the door, and the female nearly knocked me over to take the only available seat in the car. So I turned around and said, here you go, privilege, while gesturing the woman to pass and sit down. In their usual oblivious fashion, the couple did not react or even acknowledge me, pretending to be deaf. I did not know where this rudeness was coming from. I was more frustrated that they didn't react, though it was obvious they were being deceptive while sitting back relishing in their ability to manipulate the situation while appearing not to be participating in it, but being inconspicuously passive-aggressive at the same time. 
This is such an ego-driven type of behavior, and these manipulators and these mongrels drive on covert manipulation, trying to control people mentally through the power of mind control. Another situation occurred the following day when I called a man an asshole under my breath because he was walking slow and preventing me from moving past him. And when he finally noticed me behind him, he started behaving scared and slowed down, but still was not allowing me to pass. This is crap that irritates me. I needed to understand getting, why getting mad will not change anything. I needed to learn to accept this blatant disregard because the negative forces on this planet was greater of a force to control. Yet I still had control of myself, so I needed to control my ego, humble myself, take it down a notch, put out that fire that burns with rage. Maybe it was my soul feeling wronged for having to go back into a human body and be tortured by my emotions. I decided I would cancel my gym membership and go back to nature. I found a tree near Jackie Robertson Park to sit under and meditate. I found this spot relaxing and therapeutic, allowing me to concentrate and write my poetry, being in my natural element, something I admired about nature. And I've been focusing for some time. I hadn't had the creative spark I desired, but something drew me to this tree. And I started coming every morning before I went to Starbucks to journal and having my morning coffee. I was studying ancient Kemet, meditative exercises from the book spiritual warriors are healers and i am learning in order to find my creativity i must sit and think intensely after a week or so i was falling with i was flowing with creativity and writing some of my best angry prose allowing myself to heal from my internal darknesses i started seeing the tree as a haven but then a city park and recreational worker spotted me meditating and decided to walk over to me and disturb my peace. I do not know what it is about black men and their hangups with alternative lifestyles, but they hate to see another brother living his life peacefully and being one with nature. He claimed to work for the park and began interrogating me about why I was in the area. Then he asked me to leave the premises because people were not allowed near the flower beds. I obliged the first couple of times, but after that third time, I knew the enemy had purposely dispatched him over to me to take me away. The only thing that brought me satisfaction when I asked him what his name was, he refused to give it to me. Then he hurried off to avoid being figured out that he was a phony, only wanting to frustrate me because I was gay and seemed to be peaceful. And there's nothing more infuriating to a straight man than to see a gay pe- to see gay people happy and enjoying their life. They would rather tie us up and throw us off rooftops where they fall to our where we fall to our deaths like they practice in Syria. I know that I cannot change what is happening to me no more than I can change a person as a social worker. It is a pointless trying to so I become passive agent to this manner of life. I often try to explain this phenomenon culturally, but other variables seem to be at play that goes beyond culture and can only be explained mystically. That is neither explicit nor implicit. Phenomenons are what they are. Some people say it's witchcraft. Some call it bad luck. Religious people think it's the devil. But no one has a standardized answer. But we have attempts formed all all events in the realm of science. Though that it may be scrutinized in the way which suits some means of legitimizing our claims toward a reasonable hypothesis. Our current narrative is in desperate need of reformulation. Creating an apparatus of divisiveness, mistrust discord, violence, and anything else that comes with our different standards of perceiving life. I try to find reason under the murkiness of distorted events by asking the question, why phenomena has happened the way that it does? 
This become problematic to a believer of a higher power when trying to consign mental and behavioral conditionings to an unreliable criterion that goes beyond supernatural causations. If I can shut this scrutinization of modern cognitions off and live my life, I could be a more effective human being. But people seem to be bent on preventing this from happening. I need to break from reflecting on my level of pain because it makes me think I am going crazy. Even when I, am, when I can verify my paranoia, I still feel that it's too much for my brain to take. I stopped meditating after I was kicked out of the park, nor have I gone to church. Only been living and trying to be a good person. I was still aware, but I could not get out of my head that there was some imminent threat looming in the shadows. Learning from past experiences will enable me to show compassion and reflect um, and respect the dignity of life. Impose the clapping back at every clapper. Life is too precious and irreplaceable to be consumed with negativity, to, uh, to allow outside influences to steal my joy. I cannot allow people to stop me from seeing the interconnectedness of all things. I used to feel that yet evil people lacked the will to be connected, so they deserved my hate and discontent. I realized by showing my unhappiness, I am displacing inadequate feelings I feel on the inside. The rejected feeling can seem the only is seen to only verify itself by the way people treat me. I learned to not allow the frivolous temperamental problems to define how I live my life. When I live life simply and avoid problems, I feel the unlocking of a twisted knot once tied around my heart. The uncomfortable thrashing about as if the war has been happening on the inside of me, causing my body to crunch up with convulsions as if I was punching, punched in the stomach. But it's only the release of negative energy leaving my body. I realize this energy is trapped behind my chest cavity like a caged bird, arresting that black, scared, fearful, and lonely boy condemned to, condemned to his own neurotic personality, furthering the marginalization of his heart, disallowing it to heal and grow into something resembling his higher self, which is the spirit of God. All this time I associated the will of my personality with the will of the soul, and this continuously frustrates the notion that my lived experience seemed to disagree with my soul's destiny. It never entered my mind that my life was in fact moving in the direction of my soul's incarnation. I was not thinking about destiny or karma or low or high frequencies. I did not realize that my personality was a piece of my soul, making myself making itself known and expressed by the non-physical aspects of light energy influencing it. Why had it taken me so long to figure out life's problems? That the answer was directly in front of me, plain to see if I only allowed myself to heed to its will. I was never willing to admit to myself that my personality, though in an organic quality of the soul, it is influenced by past lives and the life I have created. I only perceived phenomenons in the physical, using only my five senses, but I was never aware that the personality is more than an aspect of the psychological, but it has the quality of recalibrating its characteristics spiritually. Chasing after pursuits can lead me faster to realizing this pursuit, but it's crucial that my purpose orients itself with the purpose of the spirit. Gary Zukoff writes in The Seat of the Soul, it is, the, it is answering what I ask in my heart and not what I'm expecting to find out of my intellectual interpretations. 
After reading this, I felt lighter and was in better control over my responses toward these volatile interruptions. I seriously questioned my motives and asked myself, was my emotional response, which carried with it a degree of frequencies, evolved out of my true intentions or out of a neurosis that developed artificially as a default response in order to quickly process all the foolishness I was being subjected to on a daily basis. I decided that everyone was potentially my enemy and I needed to fight against their energy so I could maintain my own supposed higher frequency. I realized I was one op- I was the one operating on the frequency of fear. Then I was able to distinguish my own lower vibration vibratory frequencies that was attracting the similar low frequency channels. Here I was wondering why am I constantly subjected to negative people having low frequency? But I know now it was because I was thinking low frequency thoughts. I did not associate my anger, fear, impatience, intolerance, and judging heart with this interaction with the supernal universe. I never thought that as Buddhist philosophy explains that of the lower worlds as being equated to lower frequencies, I operated by this lower frequency thinking of it as a defense mechanism against everyone else's stupidity but I was using the same emotional energy to fight against like energy feeling bewildered for not being able to avoid it when I was attracting the frequency to me by seeing the bad and obstacles I was denying that the good still existed I was thinking from a tactical standpoint as if I was a soldier in battle I did not truly realize this was a way not this way was not helping me either because it was a defense enabling the low frequency, creating the same psychological malady within myself that was coming from outside. Irrationality unchecked turns into a neurosis and it saps my energy and drains me essentially from doing the things that I need to do. Depression and anxiety and impotence are all results of operating on a low frequency, which is virtually a lack of consciousness. The more consciousness I achieve, the higher the frequency, thus removing the negative emotional response to the complex web of confusing messages encoded in our understanding for survival. I needed to experience higher consciousness promotes growth and overall well-being and not the continued anguish and distress that I was experiencing. I now could use the lessons as a specimen in the laboratory of life. Then I can let go of the ego and decide to trump hate with love. Was I foolish not perceiving fear and enlightenment as two opposite energies operating on two different wavelengths? It was nonsensical to learn about Newton's law of motion or Murphy's law and cause and effect or even the laws of duality and not be able to connect the concepts to human interaction when these two domains interplay along the realms of quantum physics. Had I been able to grasp these invisible laws of the universe, they could have surely freed me of my stuck mind and my arrested emotions. Have I been able to unlock the negative energies that will unveil the secrets to how my daily experiences are direct effects of my energy bank? Now, not knowing about these energies was robbing me of living life in the light. I was reading the light, hearing the light, but I was not living in dark but I was living in darkness not allowing my heart to change only understanding in the psychological using only the intellect there are continuous choices that I must be conscious of remembering that I'm in control of the implications it is not only something that I get to possess but a permanent part of my internal factory that must be maintained like a car 
It has taken me long to finally get it because I was not willing to accept my imperfections and believing that I was too and believing that I too was capable of a life of laws and prestige flaws and prestige fluctuating through consciousness and unconsciousness learning that I attract like energy into my objective environment and knowing how having anger and resentment stems from fear I must attract like energy when I am thinking negative thoughts I know that I play a role by the quality to which lessons happen but can I accept this phenomenon I cannot surrender my ego and diffuse my intellect to to imbibe a new way of expressing my personality. I knew my reluctance stemmed from my resentment of being alone and not valued, but I paid no mind to how I enabled fear to rule how and how I responded to my circumstances. I took this notion of free will a little too far and decided I would make a man and manage my own choices based on my own intent alone, not considering the impact. Could I feasibly have my cake and eat it too? Would I ignore the strings tugging at my heart, pulling me toward my soul's purpose? Would I respect the tongue as a device of intentions? Would I ever realize that my thoughts can be controlled? That I may not always be in control of the frequencies by which information is filtered in, but I can decide the quality of the information. I could consciously reject a thought and not ascribe to its meaning by not taking on the form of my volatile emotions. Once I realized how alterable the constitution of my mind was, I was able to relax about the brain serving as the powerhouse of my body and not some pinky in the brain scientist outside controlling it. But how could something so flawed as the brain be the lifeblood of my survival? And more urgently, how do I cope irregardless of subjecting subjective phenomenons that can neither be tested, measured, analyzed, examined, yet and still they carry damnable ramifications. I had to learn that all that is physical or exists in the realm of the material world are manifestations and created reflections of creative thought energy. And I should not give predominance to these symbolistic qualities of my human experience. What I perceive from the sensory perception are only illusions, as much of an illusion than the idea of it. If I am to be conflicted by the world, I should look at who is creating the illusion. Prayer became important because not only was I getting information from the terrestrial world, but my celestial too. And I was guided by both realities determining the karmic influences. That is why I never perceived that there were laws because I was trying to view life using my physical eye, using my psychological brain that is flawed, seeing two objects not one and the same. We have attempted to control this dynamic process with organized religion, subterfuge, and trickery. We are programmed to see our individual worlds extending out of the societal world, and this creates the potential to, for chaos and social disorder due to the complexities of our own mind and the irrational natures of our impulsive will. In a way, humans cannot be honorably, honorably while living individually, making purely individualistic choices, but we constantly lie to ourselves that we are satisfied with the way we are, so not to alienate our original intent, even if the consequences never turn out the way we imagined. But this is how God shows himself. God, allows, God also shows himself in our dreams. We did not hear him correctly, and on this particular night, I dreamt that I was inside of a classroom, and a little black girl was standing in front of me, but I did not recognize her. She looked no older than eight years old with a dark brown complexion, and she had dreadlocks. 
as I stared into her laser eyes that suddenly turned a glowing red color and as if under possession, she tells me, change is in you. The next thing I remember, I was passing my published book around to students in a classroom. One person mentioned that it was some old book and I, of course I got offended, but no one seemed to care that I had written a book. The child said something more about going with my instincts to how I should live my life. After the little girl said those words, changes within you, her eyes went back to its original brown color. I think it was a message from God speaking through this little girl in my dream. I woke up around 9.30 a.m. and cursed the gods because my memory had been wiped clean and I could only remember bits and pieces of my encounter. I had finally saw God in my dream, but then he made my memory fuzzy and now... I don't remember how the girl looked. I was fighting my anxiety by screaming erratically like a madman in my apartment. This comes off even in public as the anxiety comes up involuntarily and it feels so overwhelming I feel I need to re release it immediately. But this behavior feels more provoked by something because I never acted so deranged. I didn't want to come out the house for fear of it. People would see me as being, being unrestrained, but I knew the spirit of isolation was counterproductive and I did not want to put unnecessary anguish on myself simply due to my own supposed right to be angry with God, but I was pissed. Anger is such a low vibration that it's hard to operate when it has control over the mind. It is literally incapacitating me. My thoughts become scrambled and it feels like demons are poking needles at me, causing me to feel unsettled in my own skin. I'm uncomfortable and not at all at ease. There are no expedient way to relieve myself of this emotional term, <laughs> and I cursed God and threw up middle, my middle finger in the air, flipping him off, blaming him for putting me in this inescapable reality that seems futile. By the next, mor by the next afternoon, I could not longer remain alone in my apartment, feeling, fearing an evil spirit lurked in the closet. So I took the train to Harlem to have a cheeseburger at a burger shop on 118th Street. After getting my burger, I sat down to eat. And after a few minutes, a little boy and his mother walked inside the restaurant to order. Without a, while his mother's directing him, the little boy, who had to be no older than seven years old, came and sat directly across from me. He said, hi, and I said, hello back. His mother was in line waiting on her food, so I did not want to talk to a strange child, but something kept me interested in this little boy. I watched his movement as he uncapped a bottle of water, pouring the fluid into the cap, then he looked up at me and asked me if water was wet. I did not understand the question at first, but because it seemed self-explanatory that water would be wet, he never explained the parable before raising up and following his mom out the restaurant. I figured it was God's way of talking to me through this child, but what was he asking me about that I didn't understand? And I did not consider myself smart, but apparently not smarter than a fifth grader. <laughs> I could not sleep all night thinking about that little boy whom I had met at Harlem Burger restaurant and the question he asked me. Then it occurred to me that water is not wet. Wetness is a description of our experience of water. What happens to us when we contact water in such a way that it impinges on our state of being. Our possessions get wet. And in such a way, this is impinges on our, impinges on our state of being. Our okay. And I related this to my experiences compensating water for God and the wetness of him being that the experience I feel when it contacts me. It was strange how the most profound lessons in life come from the most unsuspecting people. I figured God was using children to communicate to me and it confirmed what Bula said that I would be good working with children. 
And that is the end of that chapter. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in the next segment. Goodbye.